Welcome to On Leading. I'm Shauna Steffen, getting to learn from Dr. Sylvia Earle, who is a literal living legend, according to the Library of Congress. Dr. Earle is a woman of firsts, including the first female chief scientist of the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the first Time Magazine hero for the planet, and the first, and still only, human being to dive solo to a depth of over half a mile. An oceanographer, National Geographic explorer, entrepreneur, and advocate for a resilient planet, Sylvia brings a rare perspective on the challenges and opportunities at this time of unprecedented change. For her part, after spending nearly a year underwater throughout her career, she has made it her life's work to establish a global network of marine protected areas. In this interview, Sylvia teaches us about the restorative leadership practice of taking the long view by encouraging us to realize that we have the power to do what no other creature on earth can. We can look far into the past and anticipate the future. Surprisingly, she offers what may be the most important accounting lesson of our time as she inspires us to leverage our collective intelligence to protect the real world bank to ensure that life on earth goes on. My first question is, what do you love about your life? Life itself mm. is a gift. <laughs> and the opportunity to make of it what you can during the time that is available to me as an individual is a, that's a challenge, that's a joy. I think being in a living living at this time and in this country is part of what makes that possible. You have the you have the, we have the choice. It's the ability to realize what not only no other creatures on earth, just humans, have the capacity to do to look far into the past and with the capacity to anticipate the future armed now with the knowledge that has been accumulated over all preceding history, mm. I think gives us the possibility that we can find for humankind a place within the natural systems that keep us, keep us alive. And for me personally, uh, just the awareness that this is that special point in history, that never before could we know what we know and never again will we have a chance as good as the present time to take action to secure the integrity of the system within the span of a human lifetime where we're witnessing changes of geologic magnitude. And every living thing on Earth, we're all sharing this, this time of unprecedented change initiated by one species, that would be us. But we're the only ones who can recognize the cause the effects and find solutions. You ask what you like about your life. Well, being around at this point in history mm. is both challenging, but it's also very rewarding, very exciting. Mm. And recognizing that I, as an individual, like every other individual on the planet, each of us has, has the capacity to actually make a difference. But it starts with knowing. So you speak to change, with change in mind, if you could change one thing in the world with a snap of your fingers right now, what would you change and why? I would have 
an awareness in people everywhere that their lives depend on maintaining the systems, the, the natural living systems, in uh, both through protect, protecting what remains of the natural systems and restoring what we can, uh, as if our lives depend on doing that, because they do. Our first priority, as Obama has famously said, is to keep the world safe for our children. To me, keeping the world safe for our children is not just about guns and things. It's about maintaining a planet that works in our favor. We have to be able to breathe. We have to be able to plan within a framework of a planet that, that functions in ways that heretofore we've always taken for granted, but never again will that be possible because we can now see we've crossed that threshold of 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. We're observing trends of acidification of the ocean, which can basically change everything about how the planet functions. Uh, we have seen the decline of coral reefs around the world. About half are already gone or are in a state of decline since I was a child. 90% of many of the big fish are gone since I was a child, and that because of human pressures, human activity. We've seen a growth of dead zones in coastal areas all over the world. We have the capacity as humans to see globally what's happening and to anticipate what impact that will have on our future. But most people appear to be blissfully unaware of not only the magnitude of what's happening, but also the consequences to us, to us within our lifetimes, those who are around right now, not just the kids, but people who have only a, maybe a few decades remaining on their lifeline. But what we do now has such magnified difference on everything that follows because we're so close to so many tipping points. So if in a stroke, people could suddenly see that, understand that, like wish number two would be to have policies in place that would would protect the natural systems that give us oxygen in the atmosphere, that reverse the decline of, of the, the ocean systems that generate oxygen and take up carbon dioxide, significantly reduce the extraction of ocean wildlife. Uh, so, you, but the main thing, number one thing is, you've gotta get people, if there were a way to a magic stroke to give them that awareness, that knowledge, that our lives depend on taking care of the natural systems that heretofore we've always taken for granted because we could, but we can't anymore. And we have to proactively protect air, water, the fabric of life, because our lives do depend on doing so. Mm. Thank you. Your response has me think of a, an, an earlier time and quote uh, following the Valdez oil spill. When you responded with such a profound question, how, how do you weigh the forever cost of this catastrophe? And then 
went on to say something like what you're saying. We, we haven't yet understood in the comprehensive way that some of us are just agonizing to make the world understand that this is the system, this is the planet on which we are all utterly dependent. What, so what in your experience, what is that actually going to take? How do we, what is the most successful way to forward that understanding? Well, we have messages all around us. It's just how do you get people to tune in and, and accept it? I think this is the best chance we've ever had because social media now exists. Um, I think images help. I think we're seeing the connection between our uh, economic prosperity and environmental prosperity. You trash the environment, the economy soon follows. If you have an economy that is in poor shape, the environment continues to decline accordingly. People will eat their seed corn if they have to in order to survive. The health of people really, well, let's say the, the prosperity and health, security, all are anchored in a sound, robust environment. And when water is in short supply, food is in short supply, when you, people can't breathe the air, their health declines, that leads to conflict, it leads to war. People want to move out, go somewhere else. I mean, it's just a very natural thing. It's self-preservation to want to keep your, keep moving in a direction that's better for your life and that for your family, your children. So what we are now seeing is with 7 billion people, the, the crunch for good places to live uh, it's, it's the pressures are on as never before. It seems fundamental to human prosperity to have a sound environment. The evidence is very clear that, first of all, Earth generally, certainly the ocean, is not too big to fail. It's vulnerable to our actions. And you can look at the cause and effect consequences of what we're putting into the ocean we're taking out of the ocean, what we're putting into the atmosphere, and how that relates to planetary functions. This is, is, is um, documented, I mean, it's measurable. You can see it, there's evidence. You can look at the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it's evidence. You can see the decline of fish in the sea, evidence. The loss of coral reefs, more evidence the decline of plankton in the ocean since the 1950s. And you can look at areas where we've increased uh, fertilizers that flow from the land into the sea. Uh, there's enough documentation in the 20th century and now into the 21st of what it was like before major agricultural runoff flowed into places like the Chesapeake Bay or the Gulf of Mexico or coastal areas uh, in Australia and around the world to see how it was, how it is, and we can project pretty clearly what the next 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years will be if we continue along the same levels that we have witnessed over the past half century or so. So the projections are there won't be coral reefs by the end of the 21st century if we keep doing what we're now doing. 
the good news is about half are still in pretty good shape. We have the capacity to take some of the pressure off and to give a better chance for their con continued survival, which in turn reflects benefits back to our personal life support system. Now, all creatures depend on how the planet as a whole functions. It's not land here, ocean there, <laughs> polar areas here, desert areas there. It's all um, connected in ways so that if any part suffers or changes, there's, it resonates throughout the whole system. It's a matter of altering the nature of the ocean itself. That um, last statement that you made really is um, sums up the what I've come to know is one of your strong messages is that we're altering the nature of nature itself yeah, and right. uh, and and with that awareness you also bring um, uniquely you bring a hopefulness by by assuring that there is good news the good news is that we now know and there's still time then as you talk about reminding us that we have both the power to destroy but also to restore and, That's right, and heal. Yes, yes. So as we look at this, and, and the decade or so that you have estimated remains to take action, given what you described is the current state of the world, the, in particular the oceans, above all else, above all else, what must be done as the next step or steps in this time frame as you think about the, the, the map? The roadmap. You know, protect, protect what remains of the natural systems that are in good health on, la on the land. And we have networks of protected parks and such, but we've historically protected them for their beauty, for recreation, sometimes for protecting watersheds. Proactively protect it into the woods, woodlands, uh, in order to protect the water supply. And there's an increasing awareness that of the connection between things that either you have to pay a lot of money for what some people call gray infrastructure, like sewage treatment plants and water filtration plants and so on that, that could and should be performed by healthy natural systems. We have inherited a planet that works and we have, without intending to, undermine the capacity of these natural systems to work in our favor. So proactively to protect what remains of these healthy, natural, service-performing systems and the diversity of life that is essential to holding the planet steady. You know, if you just reduce the number of species to a relatively small number instead of the abundance that we now have, the planet is less resilient to the changes that are taking place. The other is to restore what we can protect what we've got, restore what we can, knowing that every acre of land that we can embrace with protection is like money in the bank. It's like your life support system, you're strengthening it. Uh, astronauts up in space know that they have to take care of their life support system as, a, as the first priority of their survival. And we all, in a sense, are on a, something called Earth, a spaceship careening through a most unfriendly universe. If we have any hope of even maintaining our present numbers, uh, let alone accommodating 
an increased number, which seems likely, projections are maybe nine or ten billion by the middle of the century, the planet doesn't get any larger. We have to face up to the reality of the limits to what we can extract from or put upon our life support system. And the good news is now we can see what no other creature has the capacity to see. We can see what's going on and not wait until we've consumed the last drop of clean water or eaten the last fish. Um, we are at a point that I'm not alone. I mean, I'm just one of many voices saying this is as never before. We're at tipping points. This is the turning point. We have a chance to get our act together. Um, celebrate, because if you could choose a time to be influential, to make a difference in all of history, this is the moment. You can't wait, or we will lose opportunities that are now available to us. If 50 years from now, it will be much harder to reverse the trends that are not working in our favor. Right now, you know, we still have a hope of pulling down, leveling off the amount of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere. Perhaps even finding ways to reverse that current level and bring it back to something um, that it gives us a better chance for prosperity going forward. We are currently where we're still extracting wildlife out of the sea, which is terribly inefficient way to feed people, very costly, and not very effective in terms of either supplying calories to people or in terms of maintaining the integrity of ocean systems that require diverse and abundant levels of wildlife. I mean, taking away the sharks, taking away the tunas, taking away so many of the fish in such a short time, this collapse of many of the creatures that we put on our tables uh, for relatively inefficient source of, of food. Big, big impact on the ocean, relatively small impact on feeding people. It's more of a, become more of a, a luxury than a necessity for most people on the planet. Taking wildlife, whether it's from the forests or from the sea, is still a requirement for sustaining some people. But the large-scale industrial extraction of wildlife from the sea is not feeding starving people. It's not feeding, it's not providing sustenance to coastal communities who really rely on this. It's, it's feeding large enterprises that are extracting at the public's expense from the, the global commons products, whether it's pounds of meat or oil or food for cattle. But this is not a, a matter of feeding large numbers of people. It's just, it's feeding the appetites of large corporations. Nothing wrong with making a good living, but on the other hand, when you're doing it at public expense, fueled by billions in subsidies, globally the industrial fishing is sustained in part by more than $30 billion of subsidies from taxpayer support. So those are among the issues. We have to take the knowledge that we now have available to us and put it to work in ways that will 
provide better lives for people with less of a drawdown on the natural assets. If you look at the world, think of it as the World Bank, the real World Bank, and think of all the natural systems that have made our lives possible over the ages. All of our prosperity is anchored in having a planet that works in our favor. But we've taken so much of this for granted. And now we can see that this isn't possible anymore. You can't take the air you breathe for granted anymore. We have to proactively um, do what it takes to make our lives more prosperous by taking the pressure off our life support system. Thank you. If that which you just said, that, that closing sentence about our World Bank, if that could just be heard and gotten by every one on the planet, there'd just be no doubt about the shift happening. Ed Wilson, who's yes. one of my heroes at Harvard and a great thought leader, on his 80th birthday at a conference that took place in New York, put it poetically, he said, you know, we're letting nature slip through our fingers. Mm. Letting nature slip through our fingers. And we are. We used to think it was a good thing to cut down the forest so we could plant something useful like corn or tobacco or something that had a value. We thought trees had no value. And we're doing that to the ocean too. You know, fish have an accounting base of zero as long as they're swimming around in the ocean. They only have a dollar sign on them when they're extracted from the sea. And we take them out of the ocean. We don't, on our big balance sheet, recognize that something is lost. You would not run a business that way. You don't pay for the fish. They're free. And that's part of the problem. Yes. We, we don't account for nature. We've got to rethink how we account for nature, how we account for our business. And I personally am particularly focused on what we take out of the ocean that we think of as free. Everyone has an interest. It's the global commons, but only a few profit from taking from the global assets the natural assets. So we have these large fishing, industrial fishing interests that are taking from the global commons, whether it's within exclusive economic zones of countries or in the high seas beyond. Nobody paid to put the fish there or to feed the fish or to wait the years it takes to make the fish of marketable size, even small fish like herring and capelin and anchovies take three to ten years to grow to the size that they, you know, they don't just happen in a year, such as chickens you can take from an egg to market in less than a year, cows a year, sometimes two, uh, pigs, you know, it's mainly pig, piglets, but we, we don't wait until they're ten years old, but many of the fish that we commonly see in markets like halibut, they're not yearlings, they're ten years old or fifteen or twenty. Uh, orange roughy take 30 years just to mature. They may be 50 or 100 years old when they arrive on your plate. A man recently celebrated the capture, the killing of a 200-year-old rockfish in Alaska. Oh. Oh 200 God. years, and it can last on your plate for 20 minutes. Oh. Anyway, so we, we just need to account for that. We don't account for what it costs to make a 200-year-old fish or even a 10-year-old fish. We don't think about the value of the investment, starting with sunlight, 
plants through long and twisted food chain to get to the fish that appears on our plate because it's all free. Now, a farmer counts every grain of corn, or at least knows what it costs to get it from the food that he has to feed to his chickens, the place that he has to pay taxes on to house the chickens, all of the elements that it takes to get a product is accounted for. It's not that way with taking wildlife. We're letting nature slip through our fingers. But the flip side of that is nature is resilient. One way or the other, there will be a planet in the universe with us or without us. The real concern is whether nature will let us slip through her fingers. Mm. Well said. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the positive change that you are most proud to have witnessed and what it took for that change to happen. Well, early in the 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt was a leader in terms of understanding the value of nature and protecting it. He had the power, of course, as president, with a stroke of his pen, take actions that have safeguarded significant parts of this country and influenced a movement now that has influenced the world. The phrase is often used that national parks are the best idea America ever had. The ocean has had a slower reaction time, I guess, for people to become aware that we have to take action in a sea that parallels that. And that's partly because for many in the past and now, they think the ocean is so vast, so resilient, we don't have to take measures that the ocean is too big, not too, but the idea that it's too big to fail like the big banks. But now we are seeing evidence that in parallel with what has happened to the land, the ocean has quietly been degrading. And, and it's happened in the span of human lifetime, in my lifetime. I've seen the change, I'm a witness to the change. So I mean, I'm part of that group of witnesses who have been motivated by what we see, what we've experienced, to share the view and try to encourage others to see what we see. The foundation that I've started, it's called the Sylvia Earl Alliance Mission Blue, is basically dedicated to identifying critical areas on the planet and doing whatever we can to implement what, what suggested that we have to protect the systems that are working and restore what we can and empower others to see that and then give them all the support we can to take actions that will achieve those goals. And the company that I started, I started three over the years, but the one that is currently prospering, that my daughter and son-in-law own and operate, it's called Deep Ocean Exploration and Research. Every company has to produce income. It's got to you know, have more income than outgo. So you've got to make a living. Fundamental to that enterprise and a growing number of enterprises that I see all over the world is it's making a difference. You make a living, but you also are dedicated to making a difference. Responsible business, really focused on how can you use your talents, your power, your passion to not only have a livelihood, but to make a life. This isn't just about making money. This is about solving problems 
it's very satisfying to have had a hand in starting something that now is prospering by with uh, one of my children. Mm. And to see my other, I have three children, mm. to see them making life choices that are also not just about making a living, but making a difference. So fabulous. I could just be asking you questions all day long. <laughs> and uh, I'm wondering, in your vast experience and exposure, what would you say is distinct or unique about the leadership that's needed at this time in our planet's history? Oh, well, for me, I think we need leaders who empower others. I mean, there are many kinds of leaders, but some are so have such inflated egos, they tend to think it's all about them and look what I've done and celebrate me, me, me. The kind of leadership that we need is to empower that sense in, in people as a whole to, to realize that everyone has the power to make a difference. Everyone in his or her own way has the capacity to be a leader at some scale. And it's to use the power that you've got and to get individuals to inspire that kind of uplift at this critical point in history. If we continue on the path that we now seem to be headed, the future for humankind does not look very bright. But if people are inspired to take hold of their individual lives, whether it's in their family, in their school, in the workplace, wherever it is, in government, to keep focused on making the world a better place and use whatever they've got to, to make that happen. Uh, it, to me, it seems pretty simple. Mm. And we need leaders who, who get the big picture, who are looking beyond their own time in office or their own time in whatever role they're in, but to keep not only their eye on what it takes during this hour, this day, this week, this month, but to use that special gift that humans have to anticipate what the impact is going to have on the next decade, the next century, the next millennium, and to realize that we have a unique place in history right now. And if we squander this opportunity, those in the future will look back and say, hey, what were you thinking? What you, you knew, why didn't you seize this opportunity because we do know we do know that the world is the, the living world the, our life support system the, the information is all around about climate change about how water is going to be increasingly um, a topic of conflict unless we act on the knowledge we now have and figure things out while we still have time. Food, food security, big issue. But we do have time to figure things out and take action. It's that kind of leadership to put the human future on a balance sheet along with your short-term interests of how long am I going to stay in my elected office or my appointed office or in my role as a business leader or as a superintendent of schools or as a teacher in a classroom or as a mother or a father or whatever, whoever you are, whatever you do, you know, all life is transient. We should make the best, the most use of the time we've got. This has been On Leading, 
I'm Shauna Steffen with renowned oceanographer and living legend, Dr. Sylvia Earle. To support Sylvia's work of safeguarding marine protected areas, please go to mission-blue.org. And to learn more about leading for global sustainability and collective well-being through restorative leadership and action, please go to restorative-leadership.org. Thank you.